0: Policy Podcast. My name is Ashley and I'm your host. This month we're going to be talking about election security. Now, a lot of people, when they think about election security, they get bogged down in thinking specifically about cybersecurity and cyber threats when it comes to elections. But we really wanted to focus on the fact that that's not all there is to election security. Election security can really run the gamut from thinking about election infrastructure, thinking about how best to run elections so that they're secure and that people have confidence in them, thinking about, yes, those cyber attacks or potentials for hacking or that kind of thing, Um, and also thinking about making people feel free and safe to participate in those elections. So there's a lot to this career field. It's obviously a very timely conversation. And we were really excited to hear from three women experts in this field who could talk about their experience in election security. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and then we'll start off with our questions.
1: My name is Nina Jankowitz, and I'm the disinformation fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm also the author of How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. Hi, my name's Jenny Flanagan.
2: I am currently serving as a consultant and advisor in election security and election defense in this 2020 election cycle. I previously uh, had the privilege to serve as Colorado's Deputy Secretary of State, so have experience as an elections official. And before that, spent about 15 to 20 years in advocacy around elections and democracy issues, everything from ethics in government to Um, developing and supporting Colorado's election model which is now a national model for how we run elections.
3: So my name is Katja Glod and I'm currently a political risk consultant based in London specializing in former Soviet countries and um, uh, in the past I did some election observation and election monitoring and uh, I uh, started off as a short-term observer on OCEM or Election Observation Missions and then continued as a long-term observer, as an election expert and as a political analyst. And I should perhaps uh, um, just s- explain that the OCE stands for election, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And uh, it's the big organization based in Vienna, and it has a special institution which is located in Warsaw. It's called um, Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. And uh, this is the um, OEC arm which deploys election observers uh, to the, only to the OECU participating states.
0: So one of the first things we wanted to know was what interested these women about election security? What made them want to get into doing this research or working in this professionally? Jenny started us off.
2: You know, I grew up in New Jersey as, you know, as part of a Jewish family. So social justice was always um, part of our family ethic. And until graduate school, I really didn't make the connections to the importance of voting in elections to the issues that I cared about. Um, so that's when I became my work in the democracy and voting space.
0: Nina's circuitous path into the field, and I think it's a really useful story for people to hear, to know that you don't have to go directly to a particular subject area or a research topic for it to become what you make your career.
1: I started my career after I finished my master's degree at Georgetown um, at the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs, which is a group that supports democratic activists, election monitors, civil society organizations all around the world. Um, And I worked on Russia and Belarus programming. And that's when I kind of first became aware of, of disinformation as a tactic of foreign policy. Certainly, Russia was using it against... Uh, activists that it found to be a nuisance and to some extent against NDI as well, because it viewed our work as, you know, trying to unseat the Russian government, which it was not. Um, So that's when I first sort of became interested in these things. And then the conflict in Ukraine began while I was working at NDI. And I really wanted to go out into the field um, and, and do, you know, some meaningful work during that conflict and I was given the opportunity to go on a Fulbright Fellowship where I advised to the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine on strategic communications, so on the front line of the information war, as it were, and that was the same year as the U.S. presidential election, uh, so I got to watch all of that unfolding from Ukraine, which was interesting to say the least, and really instructive actually, that's where the idea for my book came, um, because, we in the United States seemed to be approaching the idea of disinformation as something that had only happened to us, something that we needed to kind of reinvent the wheel to solve. And I was seeing from Ukraine and and the countries around Ukraine that I was doing my research in, uh, that really, there was a lot to be learned from our allies in Europe. And that is the research that has propelled me through to today. Um, And of course, these issues are Extraordinarily important uh, relating to elections and, and the election that we are in the middle of right now, but they're not just election issues. You know, they they go beyond uh, election day and and the year surrounding it. It's uh, it's something that is truly a threat to not only our national security but our democracy and its foundations. And that's why I'm so passionate about making sure that we do this right because it has huge implications for every American, whether they care about foreign interference or not. Uh, it, It affects how and if our voices are heard.
0: We also heard from Katya about how she got into the election security field.
3: I was always interested in politics, even though I studied uh, um, comparative literature, literature at the university. As things were developing in Belarus, um, we had the same dictatorship as we had today. So for a lot of people, uh, politics was something very personal. So you wanted to understand it, you wanted to contribute to obviously the better future of your country. So that's how I became really interested in politics. And then, when there was an opportunity to apply for a job as, um, um, as an assistant at the OEC office in Minsk, then um, I did apply and I got the job. And this is how I started off by started off working at the OEC office in Minsk. Um, what particularly attracted me to election observation and why I decided to quit the job for the OC in Minsk and uh, continue as an election observer I think was learning about the politics in other countries because you could really um, come uh, not as you, you come as a tourist on holiday when you see only the nice parts of life but as an election observer you really see uh, uh, how people live. Uh, so yeah, so basically, I started working uh, uh, for the OCE office in Minsk um, back a long time ago in two thousand and two, and Belarus um, uh, Minsk is the capital of Belarus, and Belarus is an OEC participating state. And um, uh, the OECE had a special office, um, which it opened uh, in Minsk, I believe in 1999, as, um, 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 as uh, an attempt to foster dialogue between the um, then incumbent president Alexander Lukashenko and the opposition. So we are actually in a very similar situation today, because today, Um, You might know that on the 9th of August there was also a presidential election in Belarus uh, where the same incumbent ran and that uh, election was uh, considered uh, um, completely fraudulent by the people of Belarus, by the international community and um, neither the people of Belarus nor the international community really recognize Lukashenko, who claimed, of course, again, the victory as the legitimate president. So now there is again a big talk about the OCE as a potential platform for a dialogue between Lukashenko's regime and civil society. So we are kind of back to uh, where Belarus was Almost twenty years ago, so I started working for that O.C. office in Minsk, and I worked there for two years. And as a, a, an employee of the O.C.E., uh, as an employee of the O.C.E., you are also um, able to go as an OCE observer because all staff members get such such a chance. And um, um, that's how I started off. I think that was back in 2004. So the first time I went to observe um, a parliamentary, parliamentary elections in Georgia as a short-term observer. And then I've been uh, uh, twice observing elections in Ukraine. Um, in 2004, uh, the second time was the famous Orange Revolution. Jenny also had a really great path in
2: Yeah, I was in graduate school uh, working at the state legislature in Colorado for a lawmaker uh, representing a district in Denver, and she introduced me to some folks who were working on a ballot measure in Colorado for same-day voter registration. At the same time, the Colorado County clerks were supporting a measure for mail balloting. Both of those measures 20 years ago failed miserably, uh, but now it is both are the law of the land in Colorado, uh, where we allow mail-in balloting and same-day voter registration.
0: The next question we wanted to talk about were some of the misconceptions that these women noticed in the election security field or about the election security field that they wanted to correct. We gave each person an opportunity to address some of these misconceptions. Nina will start. There's a
1: misconception that that disinformation or election security writ large has to do with, uh, with cybersecurity. In fact, a couple of times when I've been on TV, they've called me a cybersecurity specialist, which could not be farther from the truth. Um, I mean, yeah, the, these aren't only poli- uh, cyber policy issues. Cyber is one part of election security, but there's a whole informational kind of discursive space that is separate but can sometimes bleed over into cyber when there's like hacked and leaked materials. So I think sometimes people imagine us as like cyber sleuths, but that's uh, <laughs> that couldn't be farther from the truth in, in my, uh, my own day to day. I'm much more of a kind of uh, sociological humanities type person trying to put these events into a human context because ultimately, the things that are being taken advantage of by our adversaries are the fissures in society. There's, these are all very human issues. We can make them, you know, about cybersecurity. We can make them about national security, but ultimately it's things like racism and economic inequality and, uh, you know, hot button social issues like gun rights and abortion rights that our adversaries are manipulating and amplifying in order to create discord in our society. So I think, Getting to the root, the human
0: root of all of that is really important. And, and that's what I try to do. And then we also heard from Jenny about some misconceptions she wanted to correct.
2: You know, there, there's a lot of um, concerns because, you know, voting can be a black box um, not everybody understands what happens behind the scenes. And I think elections officials are among the hardest working professionals um, in government. And they are working, generally speaking, to increase transparency so voters in the broader community can better understand how our election process works. I think that will increase confidence so people can really understand how seriously uh, elections professionals take the security of the ballot, of the registration lists, of the voting equipment, uh, to to secure and ensure a free and fair election.
0: Finally, Katya had some thoughts about misconceptions she wanted to share.
3: Well, I suppose one misconception is that people obviously have their views and they have their values, and uh, they can sympathize for with certain political parties. For it's it particularly. Uh, profound if you go to countries where I went um, that have post-Soviet, for example, where you um, really see for example, a democratic opposition movement and you see an authoritarian leader or authoritarian parties and you see very clearly how these uh, um, authoritarian leaders, pro-government, political parties, how they try to manipulate the election process, how they um, try to harass their opponents, and as an election monitor, you you have to come and you have to observe and you have to be impartial, so it's quite hard sometimes to also contain your emotions and you have to report in a very impartial way and sometimes observers do get involved, they try to um, express their views when they meet with various election authorities or political party representatives, give some um, hope um, or give, uh, usually it's a false hope of support because election monitors just come as a technical mission. They just come to observe the process and report on whether it meets, um, in my case, it was the OCE, whether it meets uh, OCE international standards for elections that every country which is participating in state has subscribed to. And um, so that's, I guess, the biggest misconception is that those who um, do election observation, sometimes they think that they should also get involved, they should help one party. And that's not what you do. You have to stay impartial and um, unbiased. I certainly couldn't have told you what
0: people do on the off years when there's not an election. And I had some really interesting conversations talking about what other things fall into the purview of someone who does election security work? We'll start with Jenny's answer.
2: Yeah, and it sort of speaks to your mis- misconceptions questions as well. Pe- people are surprised to hear security and elections in the same sentence. We think about elections as people casting their ballots once every cycle, but there is so much work that goes in year-round to ensure that our elections process is secure and trustworthy. And that's really where the security piece comes in. Everything from making sure our voter registration databases are cyber secure, um, that our infrastructures and voting equipment are securely tested and stored. Um, Every step along the voting process um, has a security component. And that's critical to ensure voter confidence and trust in our democratic
0: process. Katia's answer was also really helpful. Yes,
3: yeah, so it's a very good question because actually there is another misconception that people think that election monitoring is a very short process. So you basically arrive just uh, a day before election happens. You monitor the election, the voting itself, and the vote count on election day, and that's all, That's it. You're finished. But in fact, uh, obviously, different organizations have different methodologies. But I think most are respectable um, election observation organizations. They stick to the rule that elections are a long-term process. And For example, the OSCE idea would deploy uh, an election observation mission several weeks uh, before election day, usually 5, 6. In the past, it was even longer. Um, before election day, and that's because you have to observe the entire election process, so you have to observe, for example, when the election is called, when the election campaign has started, you have to observe this process, you have to observe how, what sort of access to the voters uh, political actors get. You have to observe the media during the elections, how they cover election campaign. And within the ocu and I think within the uh, EU as well, there is even a special media monitoring unit that they uh, monitor um, a certain number, for example, a representative number of TV channels, uh, newspapers, radio, and nowadays it's also social media and they see how um, different parties are covered. For example, do incumbent parties get more coverage than the, the parties from the opposition? Nina also had some thoughts to share here.
0: So my day-to-day
1: is a bit strange. Um, I mean, I spend a lot of time reading and writing, uh, especially, of course, when I was working on my manuscript, um, I spent a lot of time in conversations interviewing people uh, who were dealing with similar topics in Europe and, and writing those down and trying to get it out to the world. Now, ahead of the election, most of my day is filled with external outreach. So making sure that I am trying to hit as many audiences as possible to educate them about the threat of disinformation, not only surrounding the election, but beyond that. And um, involved in that is some research about... What's going on online? So not only you know reading news articles and academic papers and things like that, but also keeping tabs on things like closed Facebook groups and um, you know trends on some of the off-platform platforms like uh, Parler and 4chan, for instance. So it's it's pretty widespread right now, in particular. I'm doing a project that looks at how uh, both foreign state actors and domestic disinformers use disinformation that is sexualized or gendered against women in public life to discredit them and try to push them out of the public eye, um, which of course is, is a, has huge implications for our democracy if women aren't participating because they're worried about scrutiny um, related to their gender, or to their private lives, and that's absolutely uh, so far from what we're seeing the case. So. It really runs the gamut, Um, but I'm lucky that, you know, as somebody who works in the research sphere, I can kind of uh, structure my day as it most interests me um, and what I think is most important to do at any given time. So sometimes it's a lot more research, sometimes it's a lot more outreach, sometimes it's a mix of both, Uh, but my main goal with my work is to reach people and tell them the stories of how lives are affected by this stuff. It's not just you know, ones and zeros on the internet, I think a lot of these stories are often extremely technical and difficult for regular people to penetrate. And so both in my book and in the other writing that I do for for magazines and newspapers, I, I really try to break that barrier down and make these into human stories.
0: Because this is a careers podcast, we also wanted to hear what advice these women had for someone interested in this field. It might seem like kind of an emerging field, and so we wanted to talk about what someone who might be interested in pursuing a career here should be thinking about as they're moving through the early stages of that career. Katya had some great advice here.
3: Uh, Yes, yeah, well, I think election monitoring is more or less is sort of an ad hoc job. It's not something that can be... Uh, considered as a permanent full-time employment, so it's a consultancy opportunity, so that's number one. So if you want to uh, base your career around that, you have to be aware that you will have to apply either to the OCE or or to the um, EU every time there is a new mission, uh, election observation mission expected somewhere. So it's not that you are employed for two or three years and you do just election monitoring, because it's basically an exercise where Um, independent consultants are called for. So you have to to think about that. Then the second point is, um, the second thing I would recommend is research uh, the opportunities available, see what uh, um, organisations do election observation. I mentioned the OECU, there is also the European Union Um, election observations, uh, um, missions that send more to Africa and I think Middle Eastern countries as well. Uh, Russia and the so-called Commonwealth of Independent States, which more or less covers uh, the majority of the former Soviet states, except for the Baltics. Um, It has its own uh, um, election monitoring arm. It's Uh, very heavily influenced by Russia, but that's yet another organization where you can apply for uh, to monitor elections. So basically you have to research the opportunities and then just go ahead and apply. And as I was saying before, I think the main, my main advice would be to try and stay impartial. Remember that um, as an election monitor, you're not there to influence the outcome of the election, you are not there to help anyone. You come and you're seen as a very neutral person, someone who just reports what they see rather than trying to get involved into the process itself.
0: Jenny also gave us some excellent advice.
3: You know, there there's so much
2: um, that has to do with elections and election security, whether you come at it on the government side or, um, from an outside uh, nonprofit um, advocate side to corporate partners, everyone has a role to play in our democracy. Um, And when it comes to election security, that a big piece of it is, is that confidence and trust to ensure people understand how voting works in our country, in any country, um, because that can increase people's confidence when they really understand how the process works. So there's no wrong way to come about it in terms of securing the voting process. Um, Tackling mis and disinformation has become a huge security factor um, in the whole of society, but certainly when it comes to elections, both in terms of getting good information about the voting process and trustworthy information about candidates and issues, um, but also to ensure that bad actors don't disrupt the voting process in any way. So that kind of monitoring and engagement and education uh, to ensure that the electorates and the public are getting good information is is also a big uh, emerging field related to this work.
0: Nina's advice was also really helpful.
1: I would say in general, just follow things that are interesting to you. You know, if you told me, even four years ago at this time, when I was already in Ukraine working on issues related to disinformation and kind of encountering disinformation on a day-to-day, if you'd told me then that I would have a book out and, you know, be doing election security and disinformation analysis for major TV networks, I would have laughed you out of the room, basically. Um, I think you can't plan too much, unfortunately, but what you can do is take up opportunities that are interesting to you, say yes to things that come up, um, be creative, be energetic and add a special slice of you to the the projects that you're doing. So when I came to Ukraine for my Fulbright, in addition to my placement within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I I had planned to write um, for my research project a paper exploring how uh, social media affected the Euromaidan revolution. So not not anything like wildly uh, out of the box, but something that I was interested in because I had done some comms work at at NDI. Um, And as I was in Ukraine, after the 2016 election and revelations about Russian interference started to come out, as I read about countless new efforts being stood up to counter disinformation, that's where the idea for my, my research really started percolating. Um, and I changed my research project, you know, of course, with the full blessing of the Fulbright program, to something that I was really passionate about. I looked at how uh, Western governments and international organizations were supporting counter disinformation work in the Central and Eastern European space. That was the project that then gave life to my book. So I guess my point is. If you feel passionate about something, find a way to make that happen in your job. And certainly, that's something I did at NDI as well. You know, I was really involved with our communications and our kind of um, outreach surrounding our programs in Russia, even after we had left Russia because of USAID's closure there. I eventually went on to work uh, with the government relations and communications team because of my passion for, you know, communications technologies and all of that really um, is experience that I draw on today when I'm you know, consulting with governments on strategic communications and things like that. So find a way um, in the position that you're in, in the coursework that you're doing to really bring out the things that you're passionate about. Um, and then if you find somebody who's a mentor to you or somebody that you look up to that you encounter, um, especially for women in this space, I feel like that is hugely important. I think for a long time I was fixated on finding somebody who was exactly like me, but it, it kind of became very clear quickly that like I was following a very strange path and a bit of an unconventional path and that there wasn't going to be anyone like me. So instead, the folks that I go to for advice, even though they have wildly different backgrounds to me. Um, I, I really do try to keep them close and use them as a sounding board whenever I can because I think so many of these experiences, they're not necessarily whole cloth interchangeable, but they, there's plenty that you can draw from the NGO community where I started my career to inform the work that I'm doing now uh, you know, in the think tank space. Uh, I sometimes you know, talk to State Department colleagues or even colleagues who work for other governments to get their perspectives on things. So really just identify those people who are gonna be your champions um, and keep them close. And then the, the last thing that I would say, and this is kind of getting a little bit beyond the election security space into more general career advice, but I think these maxims hold true no matter what you wanna do. Especially in Washington, there is this, uh, you know, Premium placed on on networking and how important networking is, um, and I get really annoyed by that, <laughs> um, frankly. It, especially as I have lots of folks emailing me on a regular basis, asking for inter- informational interviews and things like that. It's particularly hard during coronavirus, of course, to really make an impact and uh, and you know create a relationship. But I would say. The best thing that you can do is just try to be human with the people that you're asking for advice or help. Um, these are people, too, right? And often we tend to put them on a pedestal when we're networking. Um, these are these very stilted interactions. Just be human, ask them questions outside of, you know, the the sphere that you're discussing, sphere of work that you're discussing, um, get to know them on a personal level if at all possible. I always tell folks who are going into internships in particular or you know their first job in in DC or beyond that the best thing you can do to to forge good relationships at the office is make sure you have lunch with your colleagues or go out to drinks with them afterward. Um, Really those human relationships are the ones that I Rely on most, and those are the people who you know I would do anything for and and vice versa um, so that 's really important finding those mentors and then finding the people that are going to be your support network, no matter what you 're doing or where you go my My friends from my first internship in Washington uh, at IreX are you know still in touch with me today, and we do a lot of work together, likewise for another internship I had at the state department um, and they 've been invaluable contacts, so just keeping that in mind is really important. It's not necessarily about informational interviews or networking events, but building real relationships with the people you encounter a- along the way in your
0: day to day. We also asked these women what they were paying attention to when it comes to this field for the next few months or the next year. And included in that, we asked, what should people keep an eye on in upcoming elections? Nina gave us some advice about the upcoming American election. I've
1: been. I've been pretty worried by some of the rhetoric coming out of the White House and the Trump campaign that militarizes election observation. Uh, Election observation is a very peaceful activity. In fact, it's a very restrained activity. Uh, Election observers are not allowed to speak to voters, generally speaking. Um, And in the United States, of course, parties have poll watchers that are there to defend the rights of their party members to vote. But even in that case, they're not supposed to be intimidating voters. They're not supposed to be interacting with voters. They're supposed to be interacting only with the poll poll workers themselves. Um, and so, when we see things like, you know, recruiting election observers with the guise of like joining an army for a candidate, or the encouragement of irregular groups of people going to the polls to quote unquote watch what's going on. Um, not only is that against regulations in many states, in 40 states and the District of Columbia, you need uh, proper accreditation to even enter a polling st- station if you're not voting, um, but it's also just anti-democratic, and it's not, I wouldn't necessarily say it is is—it is disinformation, um, it is certainly incitement to violence, but all of these things uh, amplified by the communications technologies that we have these days through social media that can target messages exactly to the people that are going to find them most appealing, um, that's where we get into really difficult territory and and regulatory territory, frankly. Um, Something that I uh, certainly will be speaking with folks in Congress about and in other policy positions is, you know, what do we do when there are candidates or other entities using social media to try to undermine the democratic process. And I think that's a question that a lot of the tech companies are struggling with right now. Um, Again, it's not just about like disinformation is bad because it's coming from a foreign source. We need to recognize that there are domestic sources of disinformation as well. And we need to develop policies around that that protect people's most basic democratic rights. And I think that's often at least until recently, until this year, or perhaps last year, was kind of left out of the equation. We, we were just you know, con- convinced and focused that this was stuff happening to us uh, from outside of our borders, when in reality, there's plenty of democracy affecting disinformation coming within them as well.
0: Jenny gave us some advice on what you can do today.
2: Well, I think if anyone's listening and wants to do something immediately, volunteer or offer to serve as a poll worker or a temporary elections worker in your local county or local community. Uh, That way you can get a, a hands on view and experience with how our voting process works and you can learn yourself which piece interests you the most. Alternatively, jumping on a campaign, whether nonpartisan election monitoring or a partisan campaign or ballot measure or issue that you care about engaging in the process to learn uh, What really happens is um, an opportunity available to everyone and that can help hone in your
0: interests uh, in terms of where you can play a role. Katya also had some thoughts she wanted to share.
3: Yes, yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, election monitoring and election security obviously go hand in hand because on every OCE or DRE mission, for example, you will have a security expert on the core team of experts who looks into uh, uh, the security issues related to a particular election, and that can be anything. Um, For example, uh, um, I can think of my uh, election observation in Azerbaijan in 2005, uh, which was quite a contested election and there was um, one murder of a journalist that happened during the election campaign, Uh, there were quite a few detentions of opposition candidates. And um, all that obviously created some um, upheaval, created some, uh, quite a few security aspe- aspects.
0: Thank you again for joining us this month. I am really, really glad that we are back on a somewhat normal schedule. I know that it has been a rough couple of months all over the world, but hopefully this helps you settle back into something resembling a routine and helps you figure out um, if maybe Election security is for you, or maybe this is just an interesting field that you now know more about because of these conversations. As always, we love to hear from you. Uh, We love to hear from you on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever you are. Um, Next month, as a little bit of a preview, we are planning on talking to people about their academic choices, people choosing to do a master's, choosing to do a doctorate, choosing to take that doctorate and work outside of academia perhaps, Um, all of the various ways in which you can move through an academic process and the choices that you make around those kinds of degrees or lack thereof. Um, So keep an eye out for that. That'll be our November episode Uh, And then we have some really interesting stuff planned for December and that I think you're going to really enjoy. As always, thank you so much for joining us this month. Um, Thank you for all of your support over the past few months. And we are very excited to be back from our brief late summer break. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast because it helps us grow our audience. And if you want to see more of the content from our organization, you can subscribe to the Women in Foreign Policy newsletter, which is available on the website, womeninforeignpolicy.org. And that's also going to have a bunch of information on the podcast and a bunch of other resources that we have for you. You can follow the organization's Twitter, which is at women in FP. And if the work we're doing means a lot to you, you can consider supporting us via PayPal at Lucy Goulet or on Patreon at Women in Foreign Policy. We are an all-volunteer team, so that means your support goes even further. We love the work we do, and we absolutely couldn't do it without listeners like you. Thank you all so much, and we will talk to you again soon.